Chapter 21. The Role of Various Forms of Oversight in Countering Corruption In the previous chapter of this book, we have seen how the establishment of effective and efficient anti-corruption entities that are STERS compliant is, at least in part, the work of a legislature that is aware of the need for independence and security of tenure among the ranks of those employed in the discharging of the obligation of the state to contain corruption and eventually to eradicate it. It is unnecessary to repeat the references to oversight that appear in the judgments cited. Instead, it is important to have regard to international efforts to provide oversight. All too often, at national level, the official oversight functions of organs of state are not as effective and efficient as they should be. This is perhaps understandable in those systems in which members of parliament strive to get themselves promoted to positions in the executive branch of government and are accordingly prepared to turn a blind eye to the excesses of the executive to which they aspire. When official channels of oversight fail or limp along, it is the task of civil society to participate in oversight too. Opposition members of Parliament have an especially onerous task in that, although outnumbered, they have the standards of the law to uphold and implement in the face of majority protection of the excesses of the executive and the public administration. At the international level, the provisions of the United Nations Convention Against Corruption suggest that a state party review of anti-corruption entities is indicated from time to time. The provision in UN Convention Against Corruption Article 5.3 is worded in somewhat tentative and clearly unenforceable terms as a nice-to-have additional but not compulsory step. It says... Each state party shall endeavor to periodically evaluate relevant legal instruments and administrative measures with a view to determining their adequacy to prevent and fight corruption. Presumably, endeavoring without success and without making any tangible change is still an endeavor. Certainly, no state's parties have ever been criticized or reprimanded by the UN for failing to comply with this open-ended and somewhat vague requirement. It is possible that the FACTI panel appointed to investigate matters of corruption in the international sphere will make recommendations for the reform of the provisions of the UN Convention Against Corruption. The provisions of Article 5.4 are in the same tone. State parties shall as appropriate and in accordance with the fundamental principles of their legal system, collaborate with each other and with relevant international and regional organizations in promoting and developing the measures referred to in this article. That collaboration may include participation in international programs and projects aimed at the prevention of corruption. The institution on the continent of Africa of the African Peer Review Mechanism, or APRM, has created a vehicle for compliance with Article 5.4 in 
those states which are prepared to submit themselves to peer review and to act on recommendations that the review missions make. Some 40 African states are members of the APRM. As Rwandan President Paul Gagami has noted, the APRM is a unique and rather bold endeavour in the history of mankind. Never before have statesmen and stateswomen who are still in power ever subjected themselves voluntarily to both internal as well as external scrutiny, and that is what African leaders set out to do. Professor S.K.B. Asante, a fellow of the Ghana Academy of Arts and Sciences, was given the honour of writing the foreword to the book The African Peer Review Mechanism, Lessons from the Pioneers, by Ross Herbert and Stephen Grust of the SA Institute of International Relations. He observed in the foreword that since the turn of the 21st century, Africa has been going through what may be termed a major governance revolution, a revolution that is quite different from the struggle for political independence. Political independence has always been viewed by African leaders as a vehicle for the development of the economies of their various countries. But, as economic independence does not automatically follow political independence, there is a new struggle in governance to achieve this goal. For there emerged many post-independent leaders who typically believed that they could rule over societies on their own terms without having to consult or include their citizens in political governance. Some of them even turned the presidency into a lifetime position, while one-party political systems flourished on the continent. By the late 1980s, most African states found themselves caught in the grips of a crisis of governance and political legitimacy. The need for a new governance regime in Africa to address these challenges led to initiatives in the areas of governance and democracy as reflected in the agenda of the New Partnership for Africa's Development, or NEPAD, which signified the advent of a new dawn in Africa's governance regime. To ensure that progress on democracy, human rights, good governance, and sound development practices highlighted in the NEPAD initiative became irreversible, the APRM has been adopted as an African self-monitoring mechanism. It is one of the most original concepts emerging from the NEPAD document, which has captured the attention of the Group of Eight, or G8, and other aid donors at a time when the focus of the international community is shifting elsewhere, signifying the unique position of the APRM in African development discourse. The authors themselves point out pitfalls of the review process. As the official APRM country guidelines note, the organization of public participation in the APRM process is in itself a central aspect of enhancing the state of governance and socio-economic development in the participating country. Such interactions can build trust establish and clarify mechanisms for ongoing engagement and empowerment of stakeholders. Governments have their own fears too. 
They are universally anxious about what civil society, the media, and political opposition might do with the APRM. They worry about what impact a negative report might have on aid, investment flows, and elections. Governments, therefore, cannot simply declare that the past should be forgotten and the APRM is a completely positive open exercise. They need to demonstrate they have turned a new page by carefully managing the establishment of APRM institutions in ways that are fully transparent, fair, competent, and free of political interference. But how precisely should governments send the right signals? Which forms of organization will be welcomed by civil society and which will likely foster pessimism and protest? This book attempts to answer these questions in an effort to assist the APRM in realizing its purpose. We hope that readers in government, civil society, and within continental institutions find value in the following pages as a constructive guide to the process. Its recommendations are meant to strengthen this endeavor in the belief that the APRM is immensely important to Africa's future. If the APRM is seen to fail, it could have devastating consequences for the continent. When it comes to the oversight of matters concerning corruption, particularly grand corruption, it comes as no surprise that the process is even more fraught. Herbert and Grutz observe. Fourth, in discussing corruption, the APRM affects political fortunes. Corruption is the single most potent political campaign issue in many countries. And for those who profit illicitly from corruption or use it to generate the political party funds needed to win elections, the APRM's focus on corruption is political in more than one sense. A salutary example is the review concerning corruption in South Africa. The review ended in 2006 with a report which identified specific cross-cutting issues around the phenomenon of corruption in South Africa. The first issue identified was the tricky question of private funding of political parties. This issue has been litigated without success by the Institute for Democratic Alternatives in South Africa, or IDASA. And, as at the time of writing in 2020, there is now brand new 2020 legislation on the statute book in South Africa regulating private funding of political parties. The relevant bill awaited signature on the desk of the President for an intolerably long time. This delay leaves a great deal of space open for clandestine ownership of political parties by crooked people in business. It is known that Gavin Watson of Basasa, a firm involved in the capture of the prisons system in South Africa, made a donation of 500,000 rand to the presidential campaign of Cyril Ramaphosa, current president of South Africa. His main rival, Nkosazana Dlamini Zuma, was assisted and was allegedly sponsored by alleged tobacco smugglers in her unsuccessful presidential campaign. There is, having regard to connections of this nature, accordingly little political will 
to reform a system that is working for active politicians. Glamini Zuma and the alleged smuggler are accused by the official opposition of travelling together to the United Kingdom and to Greece. The latter admits assisting the former in her failed election campaign. Pictures of the two of them looking comfortable together have been published in the media. The second issue highlighted is the lack of legislation to regulate the transition of public sector employees to the private sector. This type of legislation is required to prevent or ameliorate conflicts of interest arising. The seamless transition of the head of government communication to the private sector to head Gupta Television and eventually buy it before collapsing it is evidence of the lack of progress on this front. Thirdly, the APRM panel saw bribery of foreign officials by South African business people as a red flag. This is a time-honoured process. In Europe in the 20th century, the practice was so acceptable as to qualify for a tax deduction. While this is no longer the case in Europe and South Africa, there's been no move to sanction the bribing of foreign officials by local business people. Fourthly, the improvement of coordination and roles of different anti-corruption bodies was identified as problematic. Instead of implementing the decision of the Constitutional Court in Glenister III, the government has persisted in dividing and ruling the anti-corruption bodies in ways that have crippled efforts to bring the corrupt to justice. The Scorpions Anti-Corruption Unit was dissolved as part of the Zuma presidency's state capture campaign. Their replacement, the Hawks, had failed to land a single big fish on corruption charges in over a decade of existence. Once again, a lack of political will to deal with corrupt elements in politics, government and business has led to the recommendations of the panel being ignored. Fifthly, the need to strengthen the capacity and independence of the anti-corruption bodies was identified by the panel back in 2006. This feature was relied upon in the Glenister litigation after such independence as existed was undermined by transferring investigation of corruption from the prosecution service, the Scorpions, to the police, the Hawks, and which was successfully impugned for its lack of constitutionality. The government has done as little as possible to implement the steps which would ensure independence of operatives in the anti-corruption space in South Africa. Connivance in this on the part of the judiciary has not helped the cause of those opposing corruption. Finally, promoting access to information and the protection of whistleblowers were also highlighted as areas requiring attention. The default position of the state remains the refusal of access to information and no substantial steps have been taken to improve the lot of whistleblowers especially those who are not acting as employees when they blow the whistle. It can be seen from this brief review of the anti-corruption aspects of the African Peer Review Mechanism report on South Africa that when it comes to dealing with corruption, the oversight provided by the AU is of indifferent efficacy. Falls to civil society organisations 
to remain alert to the wiles of the corrupt. Herbert and Grist describe the role of civil society in the quest for good governance in the following terms. The early APRM countries highlighted a variety of civil society concerns surrounding peer review, which have grown out of recent political history. The African Charter on Popular Participation in Development and Transformation, one of the standards adopted by the APRM, puts it this way. The political context of socio-economic development has been characterized by an over-centralization of power and impediments to the effective participation of the overwhelming majority of the people. Despite decades of multi-party democracy, many states are yet to fully overcome that legacy, and it will affect the perspective of any civil society body asked to participate in the APRM. Civil society is affected by its own institutional self-conception. Many civil society groups and the media conceive of themselves as watchdogs for the public interest. Governments, particularly those that see themselves as liberators, fighting in the public interest, often resent the civil society presumption that government needs to be monitored. For the APRM to work, governments need to put that resentment aside and accept that it is healthy and appropriate for civil society to want to verify what government says and what it does. Indeed, modern democratic theory is built on the assumption that unchecked power will result in abuse of rules and resources, and all sectors of society, citizens, business, the police, military, parliament, executive and judiciary, all require legal restraints and oversight institutions. The APRM acknowledges this through the questionnaire's call for effective separation of powers, oversight, transparency and accountability. Herbert and Grust have also developed a checklist for civil society participants in the APRM process, which is included in this book as an appendix due to its usefulness to civil society worldwide. The checklist is one anybody seeking to exercise proper oversight of anti-corruption efforts can use to good effect. The culture of corruption with impunity that infects the world can only be counted successfully if a critical mass of people are prepared to ask the relevant questions in the exercise of civil oversight of the need for strong institutions of state that are able to combat the corrupt with success. The corrupt are involved with the commission of crimes that need to be dealt with by the state. Too often, the state is prepared to turn a blind eye to corrupt activities on the part of leading politicians and their friends and colleagues in business. This misstep is reason enough for civil society to take charge of the reform of the system via oversight and by drawing attention to weaknesses that can be corrected through remedial legislation. Regulatory changes, better coordinated leadership and the appointment of corruption busters who are stirs compliant. Edmund Burke famously remarked, that the only thing necessary for the triumph of evil is for good men to do nothing. Equally pertinent, but not as well known, is his statement that when bad men combine, 
the good must associate, else they will fall one by one, an unpitied sacrifice in a contemptible struggle. Grand corruption, kleptocracy, and attempts at state capture can only succeed when the combinations of bad people are allowed to get away with their crimes. Because the good do not heed the advice of Burke. Ordinary members of civil society have it within their power to make a great deal of difference to the incidence of corruption by taking an active interest in the activities of all branches of government in the war on the corrupt. There are parliaments which seek the active participation of the public in law-making processes. The executive branch of government is overseen by parliament and therefore indirectly by the public. The courts can always be turned to when the activities of other branches of government are perceived to be unconstitutional. The political will to do the necessary needs to be cultivated.